So good to see you tonight. I'm so proud of you guys. I think there are more people here tonight than there were last week. You guys are sticking with it and staying committed to it. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And that's how we're going to go through the Bible. One chapter down, 1,188 to go. And so let's stretch a bit, get our Bibles out. You got your Bible with you? Everybody got your Bible with you? Let's open up to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to have a fun time tonight. Genesis chapter 2. Again, Father, we are here tonight to worship you. We're here tonight, Lord, to study your word. We thank you that when we engage in those activities, your Holy Spirit comes and leads us and guides us. And we want to be filled with the Spirit, Lord. We want to walk in your will. We want to fear God and keep your commandments. And so we encourage you, Lord, to strengthen us tonight as we go through the Scriptures. May it go through us. Lord, we just ask that you... Prune us if necessary, that you grow us certainly, that you feed us, Lord. We need that. And we ask that you bless our Bible study tonight. Bless us by your Spirit, through your Word, in Jesus' name, amen. Once the world scientists had gathered together for a convention, they decided that since they were able to clone people and manipulate genetics and perform all kinds of marvels of technology, that the human race no longer had a need for God. And thus, these scientists, they nominated a representative and they sent him to God to break the news. Well, God waited patiently as the scientists spoke on behalf of his colleagues. And finally, God proposed a test. He said, let's have a man-making contest. Let's both make a man the way I made Adam and let's see who can do a better job. Well, the scientist accepted, no problem. But as he squatted down to grab up a handful of dirt, God stopped him. And he said, whoa, wait just a minute there. What do you think you're doing? Get your own dirt. (laughs) On the third day, God rolled back the waters into the seas and dry land appeared. God prepared some dirt for the crowning creation. And then on the sixth day, from that dirt, from the dust of the ground, God created his masterpiece, the man, Adam. This human was special. God created the man in his own image and according to his own likeness. And then he gave that man responsibility to rule, to have dominion over all his creation. Genesis chapter 1 provides a sweeping overview of creation's six days. And now in chapter 2, a spotlight shines on the creation of the man and the woman. Verse 1 of chapter 2 summarizes chapter 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended His work which He had done. And He rested on the seventh day 
from all his work which he had done. Now, God rested not to replenish his energy. <laughs> He's all-powerful. But what's the point of continually creating if you never take time to appreciate and enjoy the results of your work? And so God rested on the Sabbath day to enjoy his creation. I think we also need to take one day in seven to kick back and to relax and to enjoy the fruits of our labor and the results of our work. Well, God created the universe in six days and then he made an example on the seventh day. That's why we're told, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Notice man was made on the sixth day, which means his first full day was the seventh or the day of rest. Isn't that interesting? In other words, Adam rested with God before he ever labored for God. And here's a vital lesson for you and me. So often we jump right out there and we want to serve the Lord without first learning to rest in Him and rely on Him and draw upon His strength for the work He calls us to do. Always remember, resting with God always precedes laboring for God. Well, verse 4 tells us this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the, heaven, the earth and the heavens. Now verse 4 begins what some people mistakenly take as a second and contradictory account of creation. In reality, it's the same account but from a different angle. My camera has on it a zoom function. Perhaps yours does too. I can zoom out and get the wide angle effect. Or I can zoom in and tighten up on one aspect of the scene. Well, in Genesis 1, God zooms out. And we witness creation through the wide angle lens. Whereas in Genesis 2, we zoom in. And we focus on the crowning achievement of His creation, the man and the woman. A common characteristic of Semitic literature is to tell a story and then to tell it again with a different emphasis. And that's what's going on here in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Well, again in verse 4, This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. In other words, there was no agriculture on the earth until man had sinned and was forced to work by the sweat of his brow. There were wild oats, but there were no fields of grain, not as of yet. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. One of the very interesting things that we can theorize a lot about is the pre-flood ecology. Some Bible scholars believe that before Noah's flood, a vapor canopy shrouded the earth providing a continual mist and con constant temperatures. Since there were no air movements, there were no rain. And the earth was irrigated by these heavy dews and this mist and subterranean streams. The whole earth, in essence, became a tropical paradise. That's why in recent years they found woolly mammoths up in the Arctic, frozen in the ice with tropical vegetation in their mouth. Apparently at one time the whole earth had a rich and lush climate. Well, verse 7 recaps a birthday. 
And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Last week we learned two Hebrew words that describe God's creation. You remember them? Asa, which means assemble, and bara, which means to create out of nothing. But here the Hebrew word that's translated formed is the word yatsar, which means to squeeze into shape, to mold with one's hands. It depicts a potter's skillful mastery over the clay. Here God plays in the dirt. He squeezes and he shapes the dust of the ground and he creates a man, a human body. In the year 2002, the total value of the raw materials that make up a human body equaled $4.50. If you're feeling worthless tonight, just remind yourself that you're worth $4.50. And $3 of that is derived from your skin. Based on the price of cowhide, your skin is worth $3. The rest of you about a buck. Dr. Mayo of the famed Mayo Clinic once itemized a list of what it would take to make a human body. He says, enough potassium for one shot of a toy pistol. Enough fat for seven bars of soap. Enough iron for one large nail. Enough sulfur to delouse a dog. Enough lime to whitewash a chicken coop. Enough magnesia for one dose of medicine and enough phosphorus for a few boxes of matches. The total purchase would fill no more than a couple of grocery bags. It reminds me of Psalm 103, verse 14. For God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Why do we so often forget it? In fact, the root word for the name Adam is dirt or earth. Literally, God made, named the first man Dusty. Adam, dusty. And that's what we are. We're dust balls. We all should realize our inherent frailty and our insignificance and learn to lean upon God. Human beings are dust, but we are also more than dust. For human life is sacred, and it's valued for two reasons. First, we bear the fingerprints of the master potter, the artist who created us. We are God's handiwork. We are made in God's image. And second, God not only formed man, but he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. God is the author of all of life, but to man, God got up close and personal. The gift got personal, for God breathed his own life into the man. Of all the creatures, man alone has been given a spirit that will last forever. All of life is a gift, but human life is sacred. And that's why in utero and in old age, life should be respected and protected. Well, verse 8 tells us, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there He put the man whom He had formed. The word Eden means delights. And here the Lord personally plants a garden of delights just to satisfy the man that He had created. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two 
two trees of special significance that we'll get to in a moment. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hittikel, which is another name for the Tigris River. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now the mention of the Tigris and the Euphrates caused some Bible scholars to believe the Garden of Eden was what is, in, what is today southern Iraq. That's possible. But it's also possible that the flood of Noah so altered the earth's topography that the pre-flood rivers no longer existed after the flood. And by the time of Moses, the exact identity of these rivers was impossible to attain. So we're really not sure. Well, verse 15 tells us, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. Notice Adam is in the perfect environment. He's in a utopia. And yet he still has a job to do. God puts him in charge of tending and keeping this garden. Now granted, it was an easy job. There were no weeds at the time, remember. And there was a mist that watered the garden. I mean, he didn't have to run around pulling holes all over the place. All Adam had to do was pick fruit when he got hungry. Tough job, huh? We often think of paradise, though, as a place void of work, don't we? We all think that when we get to heaven, we see ourselves as swinging on the hammock all day long. You know, No work, no more work, no more jobs, but not so. Understand, it's not work itself that's the curse. The curse comes after work. Work is good. God made each of us for meaningful service and activity. Never forget that. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Remember, there were plenty of fruit trees to choose from in the Garden of Eden. But one tree was forbidden, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God placed the forbidden fruit within Adam's reach as a way for him to demonstrate his love for God, his loyalty to God. Hey, for love to be meaningful, it always has to be volitional. It has to be voluntary. If you love me but have no other choice, it's a hollow love. If my wife had said, I do, with a shotgun in her back, I'd always be wondering, wouldn't I? <laughs> Thus, God gave Adam an opportunity to demonstrate his love and loyalty by not eating from this one tree. Verse 18 tells us, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man shall be alone. Notice, it is not good. Isn't that interesting? Six times in chapter 1, God said of his creation, It was good. In verse 31, he said that it was very good. All of a sudden here, we're startled, we're surprised, because suddenly God says, it is not good. And what was not good about God's creation? It was not good that man should be alone. God says, I will make him a helper comparable to him. 
man needed a companion. He needed a human helper with whom he could share life. But just because God saw Adam's need doesn't mean that Adam saw his need. And this is our problem so often. We have needs that we don't realize until God awakens that need within us. Remember, God was Adam's companion at this point. His emotional, his spiritual needs were met by God. God was all sufficient. He didn't know he needed a spouse until God revealed that need to him. If you're a single Christian tonight, here's some good wisdom for you. Rather than dwell on the fact that you lack a spouse, take your needs to God. Let God meet the emotional and spiritual needs of your heart. Trust in His sufficiency. Lean on God. And when the time is right for you to marry, God will awaken that need within you. And God awakened that need in Adam in a very unique way. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. God gave to Adam the job of naming the animals. Now imagine one, one man on his own finding names for thousands of species of animals. Evidently, Adam was incredibly bright. His unfallen intellect apparently had enormous aptitude. Also understand that in ancient times, the privilege of naming was a function of dominion. You remember in the book of Daniel, when the Babylonians took Daniel and his Hebrew friends, when they took them captive, what did they do? First thing, they renamed them. They gave them all new names. It was a show of the Babylonians' authority over them. And here, in naming the animals, Adam likewise is demonstrating his authority over nature. Now, as Adam surveyed all of the animals, it became apparent to him that they all had companions. God is awakening a need within Adam. They come before him in couples, male and female. Wait a minute. There's Mr. and Mrs. Elephant. There's Mr. and Mrs. Zebra. And suddenly it must have hit him. Where's Mrs. Adam? Where's my woman? Verse 20, and so Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. Again, if you're single, notice Adam will receive his bride, not when he goes off to canvas all of the single spots. No. He finds his bride when he surrenders to God and goes to sleep. God creates her and brings her to him. And God took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. We're not sure it was actually a rib. The Hebrew word suggests something that was curved. Could have been a muscle, cardly, whatever. Something that was curved. Could have been a rib. There is a legend, though, that God originally approached Adam. And he asked him, he said, Adam, how would you like a helper that, that will cook your meals and wash your clothes and care for you constantly and iron all your shirts and wait on your hand and foot? 
And Adam's eyes lit up and he says, boy, God, he said, that sounds great. But, but what's it going to cost me? Sounds pretty steep. God said, yeah, Adam, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. And Adam replied, what can I get for a rib? <laughs> it's, been <laughs> it's been said that the creation of Eve was the first splitting of an atom. And it unleashed a force into the world that no man has ever gotten control of since. God performed the first surgery and took Eve from Adam's side. Reminds me of little Billy who sat in his Sunday school class and he listened attentively to the story of Adam and Eve. Later that morning, his stomach started to ache, and he was complaining to his teacher about a pain that he felt in his side. And she asked him, she said, Billy, I'm sorry you're so sick. What do you think's wrong with you? And he said, I think I'm going to have a wife. <laughs> hey, remember on the cross, a spear was thrust through Jesus' side. His side. And outflowed blood and water. The same blood, by the way, that washes away your sin and my sin. Isn't it interesting that what God did with the last Adam, He also did with the first Adam. He took from His side, from the side of Jesus, that which He would use to fashion for Jesus a bride, His church. Well, verse 22 tells us, Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man... He made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Can you imagine Adam's reaction when suddenly God comes through the bushes there and he's got this gorgeous creature by his side and, and he gets excited. He's getting so excited. I mean, he's totally blown away. You mean, you mean she's my helper? She's perfect. He took one look at her and he said, Whoa, man. Whoa, man. Whoa, man. Woman. And it stuck. She had come from his side. She was a part of him, and she became the perfect sidekick. Uh, you, I guess you could say that when God gave Eve to Adam, he was just so excited he was beside himself. And, and I would imagine Adam sort of put his arm around Eve and pulled her real close and, and whispered to her, Baby, you're the only one in the world for me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let me make an observation. Whatever it was that God took from Adam to make Eve, from then on, there was something missing in the man that only that woman could feel. Ladies, I know it comes as no surprise to you, but your husband is not all there. <laughs> you knew that, didn't you? 
that there's a part of him that's missing that only you can feel. There's a country song that was out a few years ago. It's called Little Rock. And there's a line in the song. I really love it. It says, without you, baby, I'm not me. That's what Adam sang to Eve. Without you, baby, I'm not me. Husbands and wives need each other to be all that God wants them to be. God puts you together because the two of you can be better for Him as one as you could be apart. As Rocky said to Adrian, I got gaps. You got gaps. Together we got no gaps. God has given your spouse to you to round you off, to balance you out, to meet your needs. Actually, the naming of the woman is one of the most beautiful and romantic passages in all the Scripture. Understand the significance here. Remember, the privilege of naming was a function of dominion and authority. And that Adam was allowed to name the woman tells us that God had placed him in authority over her. But notice how Adam uses his authority. The Hebrew word that's translated man is the word ish. And the word translated woman is just the same word but in the feminine form, isha. Adam had authority over Eve. But instead of asserting that authority in cruel ways or in domineering ways, instead he treats, chooses to treat the woman as his equal. And thus he gives her his own name. Isn't that beautiful? He gives her his own name. She took his name, not a hyphenated name. She wasn't Eve hyphen something. He was Ish and she was Isha. And they were equal. They were one together. A beautiful picture. Matthew Henry commented, The woman was taken from Adam's side. Not from his head to rule over him. Not from his feet to be trampled on but from his side to be equal with him, from under his arm to be protected, and from close to his heart to be loved. This is how every husband should view his wife. Well, verse 24 gives us God's formula for marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Notice the pattern. First you leave. You leave your parents. No more running back to mom if you have a problem. You leave that behind. You also leave behind old allegiances. Allegiances. You know when they do that unity candle in a wedding? And they light the center candle and they blow out. You know what that really means? It means no more old flames. <laughs> and that's what marriage is all about. You leave behind all other relationships. No more flirting or sharing your heart with the opposite sex. You learn to work it out with your own spouse. Then you cleave. You make a lifetime commitment until death do us part. And then you weave a new life together. The expression, they shall become one flesh, is a euphemism for sexual oneness. But there's other ways in a marriage to be one, to experience unity, harmony with each other, considerateness, cooperation, all create oneness. You build this oneness in the relationship. You consider each other. And notice the result of leaving and cleaving and weaving. It's conceiving. Verse 25, they were both naked, the man and his wife. 
and they were not ashamed. They had a transparency about their relationship. They accepted each other unreservedly. Nothing was hidden back. Nothing was held back. There were no baggages or, or hang-ups. They, they gave each other to, them, to each other freely and uninhibitedly. Beautiful relationship. How do you have that relationship? Well, you leave. And then you cleave. And then you weave. At the end of chapter 2, Adam and Eve have got it made. A ranch house in paradise. All the fruit that they can munch. And they're madly in love with each other. In fact, at this point, Adam can even tell a joke. And no one's going to say, I've heard that one before. <laughs> but in chapter 3, boy, the wheels come off. They make the mistake that a lot of couples make. They stop putting God first in their hearts and in their marriage. And look at who they meet in verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Understand, this was not simply a serpent. This was a snake embodied by Satan himself. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, when Satan is finally bound for a thousand years, he is called the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. In the beginning, Satan had tried to stop God's creation. We talked about that last week. Now he tries to spoil it. Here in the garden, he takes possession of a snake and he appears to Eve. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now notice Satan's strategy. He is so sneaky and slippery. Rather than remind Eve that God has given her thousands of trees from which to eat, Satan highlights the negative. He focuses on that one thing that God's holding back from you. Satan tries the same strategy on us. He focuses on the few prohibitions that God has given us rather than the millions of good ways that God wants to better our lives. Verse 2 and the woman said to the serpent, and here is Eve's first mistake in dealing with the devil. Don't you make it. She talks to him. Guys, Satan is a skilled tempter. He's been at it for a long time. And the moment you agree to talk, to negotiate with Satan, he's got you. When Satan wants to talk, just say no. I've heard it said, when Satan comes knocking at your door, let Jesus answer. And notice here, <laughs> we've got a talking snake. We've got a talking snake. And here's the amazing thing. Eve doesn't even act surprised. She carries on a conversation with him. There are some Bible commentators that suggest that before the fall of man, all animals could talk. It's interesting that scientists today are recovering latent vocal capabilities and talking capabilities in apes. Imagine, though, carrying on a conversation with your dog. <laughs> Wouldn't that be interesting? You know, that could really bless a lot of marriages because if your wife could talk to your dog all day, fellas, when you got home, there wouldn't be so much pressure on you. You know that. <laughs> well, Eve tells the serpent in verse 2, 
We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. What Eve says here is not true. Later, Satan will take away from God's Word, but here Eve adds to God's Word. Notice that. Look back in chapter 2, verse 17. God said nothing about touching the fruit, just eating the fruit. Here is the first example of legalism. True. Eve makes God's will harder and more complicated than God intended. And guys, that is why Satan loves to promote legalism. See, if he can get your relationship with God more complicated than it should be, if he can exaggerate God's demands on you, then he can tempt you to just sort of give it up, throw in the towel, I can't do this, why even try? That's been Satan's strategy on a lot of people. That's the mistake a lot of churches have made. That's the mistake a lot of parents have made. Being over-legalistic. Defeating people rather than encouraging people. Always remember what Jesus told us in Matthew 11, verse 30. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, verse 4 tells us, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Note the New Age views that Satan promotes here. First, you'll never die. Oh, this life is just one of many. You know, it's reincarnation. There's, there's no such thing as death. You'll never die. Notice second, don't be afraid, Eve, of eating the forbidden fruit. In the New Age, courageous experimentation, free thinking, breaking down all of those traditional taboos. That's the path to enlightenment. But is it? And third, oh, you will be like God. Discover the God within you, Eve. You're your own God. Believe in yourself, Eve. Satan's words sound eerily contemporary, don't they? Never forget, the New Age is really just an old lie. Well, the serpent says to Eve in verse 4, You will not surely die. Satan here tempts Eve to doubt God's word. Next, he says, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Now he wants her to doubt God's love. Satan will always try to make God out to be the bad guy. The killjoy. The party pooper. He says, all God wants to do, Eve, is hem you in. Take away your freedom. Stunt your growth. No, Eve, you need to be yourself. You need to do your own thing, baby. Satan promises Eve freedom from God's authority. But all she ends up is Satan's puppet and a slave to her own sin. Never forget that. Guys, when Satan throws up doubts about God's word and about God's love, don't bite. What God says is true, and why He says it is because He loves you. Well, look at what happens next. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. Now here's another threefold temptation. It too reoccurs throughout the Scriptures. 
notice when she picked up that fruit, she saw that it was good for food. Eat it, Eve. It'll make you feel great. It was pleasant to the eyes. Hold it, Eve. You'll look great. Look at Eve holding that pretty fruit. What a nice accessory to her wardrobe there. And Eve, it's desirable to make one wise. Try it. You'll be great. Hey, you'll feel great. You'll look great. You'll be great. Notice the same three temptations will show up later in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. In fact, they show up throughout the Bible. There, they're, they're, uh, they're framed this way. The lust of the flesh, feel great. The lust of the eyes, look great. The pride of life, be great. But John says, it's not of the Father, but is of the world. Satan tempts us with those same three desires every single day. Feel great. Look great. Be great. Beware. It's a trap. Verse 6 tells us that Eve took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And the universe has never been the same since. In chapter 2, verse 17, God told Adam that if he ate the fruit, he would surely die, and die he did. Spiritually, they both died instantly. Sin separated the man and woman from God. The next time we see them, they're hiding in the bushes, trying to hide from God. There's been a separation that's occurred. Physically, they died more slowly. From that day forward, their bodies began to deteriorate. Entropy, or the process of decay, affected not only Adam, but the whole physical universe was affected by his sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, The creation was subjected to futility. It happened when Adam sinned. Randomness invaded God's order. Sin marred God's perfect world. Malfunctions became commonplace. Bad stuff began to happen in God's world because of the sin of Adam. One detail to note here. For some reason, everyone assumes that Adam and Eve bit into an apple. You think that? That's not in the Bible, by the way. The Bible says nothing about an apple. It just says fruit. Besides, as the old saying goes, the problem wasn't the apple on the tree. It was the pear on the ground. (laughs) Well, verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And here Eve becomes the only woman in history to ever make the statement, I haven't got a thing to wear, and it be totally true. As soon as Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, they became aware of their own nakedness. Understand the nature of sin. You see, up until this point, before sin entered the picture, they were oblivious to themselves. They didn't even notice themselves. They didn't even realize that they were naked. They were completely unashamed. But suddenly, once they sin, they go from being God-centered people and other-centered people. You see, they were fixated on God and each other. Suddenly, they become self-centered people. That's the nature of sin. Instantly, they become aware of themselves and they realize they're naked and they need to be covered. This is the heart of sin. 
It's no accident that the middle letter of the word sin, S-I-N, is I. And that's what sin is all about. It's about selfishness. Eve gained the enlightenment that she sought, but when her eyes were open, she didn't like what she saw. Be careful if you're seeking enlightenment through forbidden fruit. You might not like what you see when your eyes get open. She saw God's wisdom, but now from a different angle, from the angle of disobedience, and it filled her heart with guilt and with shame and with regret. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Notice Adam and Eve's immediate response to sin was to hide. They planned a cover-up. They sewed together fig leaves and made green speedos. The original fruit of the looms right here. <laughs> they hoped to cover over their selfishness, to get rid of this selfishness, but their plan backfired. I have a good friend of mine who tells me that fig leaves make you itch. If you come in contact with fig leaves, you, you, you start scratching. It's, you get a terrible itch, which means fig leaf speedos. <laughs> Think about this for a minute. It made them even more self-possessed and self-preoccupied and aware of themselves and focused on themselves. They're sitting there scratching themselves. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves. There's a separation now between God and man. And from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What a sad picture. Here is the president and first lady of creation, now hiding in the bushes, scratching like crazy. <laughs> then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Please note, this was spoken not with the voice of an angry mobster banging on the door, seeking revenge. Where are you? I'm going to get you. This isn't the Godfather. This is God the Father who loves His kids. To read verse 9 accurately, you need to read it like a broken-hearted dad, passionately seeking a wayward child, hoping to restore his family, hoping to bring them back home. Son, daughter, please come home. Where are you? I love you. Please come back. Verse 10 says, So Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now their first response to sin was to hide. That's our first response to sin too. That's why confession and repentance is so difficult to come clean, to be honest. But their second response to sin is to hurl. They get involved in the blame game. They start passing the buck. And isn't that what we do? We hide until we can't hide any longer. And then we start to hurl and blame somebody else for our problems. Here the man goes first. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. <laughs> oh boy. This guy is pretty arrogant. 
He blames not only Eve, notice he blames God. He says, the woman whom you gave me, God, you did this to me by giving me this gal. It's your fault, God, for giving me the woman. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, this serpent deceived me and I ate. She blames the snake. Eve uses the old Flip Wilson line that got so many laughs. The devil made me do it. But God wasn't laughing. And God's not laughing at our excuses either. If you sinned, stop blaming it on your spouse or the snake or your kids or your boss or your salary or your friends or your job or the devil. God will forgive us. God is asking, where are you? He wants you to come home. He will forgive you. He wants you to come out of the bushes and stop hiding. But you've got to accept ownership for what you've done. Confess your sin. And He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now notice carefully what happens here. The man blames the woman The woman blames the snake. And the snake doesn't have a leg to stand on. (laughs) Literally, verse 14 says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. The snake is destined to do belly flops. Here's the origin of the expression, bite the dust, right here. The snake will crawl on his belly. But notice the implication. If crawling was his punishment, then did the snake originally sport legs? Perhaps. Herpetologists, those who study snakes, they point to the nubs on certain snakes' skeleton as proof that they once had appendages. This may explain why the Orientals are so preoccupied with dragons. What is a dragon but a snake with legs? Isn't it interesting that Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 pictures Satan not necessarily as the serpent, but also as the dragon, a snake with legs, his pre-Adam form. Well, verse 15 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. It's called the Proto-Evangelicum. See me later, I'll give you the spelling. It's the first mention of the gospel in all of the scriptures. The proto-evangelicum. God tells the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now this is the easy part of the verse to interpret. In other words, he's saying here, most women are, are going to be afraid of most snakes. Now there are exceptions to the rule, but... Most women are going to be afraid of most snakes. I'm going to prove that to you. How many of you women tonight hate snakes? Raise your hand. See that? Most women are hostile towards snakes. That's what God said would happen. This also proves, though, that partners in sin usually end up bitter enemies. Remember, Eve and the snake used to chit-chat together. They used to talk on the telephone. They were good buddies. But partners in sin usually end up bitter enemies. God predicts they'll be hostile to each other. 
And God will also put enmity or hostility between your seed and her seed. Now the seed or the sperm of the woman is a bizarre term. Nowhere does a seed belong to a woman. And obviously this is a unique birth that's in view. A supernatural birth in fact. I believe Genesis 3 verse 15 refers to Jesus' virgin birth. The seed of the woman. This becomes clearer in the next line. He shall bruise your head. The seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. But you shall bruise his heel. In other words, the seed of the woman is Jesus. And on the cross, Satan bruised his heel. A non-fatal blow. Just a bruise to the heel. But Jesus bruised the serpent's head. Or the serpent's authority. Jesus crushed his authority. He stripped Satan of his power. On the cross, Jesus struck the decisive blow. The knockout punch. The devil has no more power over the heart that trusts in Jesus Christ. Satan has bitten the dust. In verse 16, God turns to the woman and assigns her her punishment. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Ladies, imagine giving birth the way God originally intended. Pain-free contractions. No pain, all gain. But that ended before the first delivery. Sin brought forth labor pains. But the woman's sentence was twofold. Also, your desire shall be for your husband. Your desire shall be for your husband. Eve was sentenced to labor pains and then laboring with a pain. You'll, desire, you'll actually desire old Dusty. You'll desire this dust ball. It, it always amazes me that, that she said, I do. She loves me. She actually desires me. And he shall rule over you, he says. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, Paul explains how that Genesis 3 affects male and female roles even today. The woman, you see, was saddled with the tough task of submitting to an imperfect authority. That's tough, ladies. God calls you to submit to an imperfect authority, to a man who makes mistakes. That's tough. That's a curse. And in the church and in the home, these are the roles that God has set forth. It's interesting, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, Paul reminds us that Eve was deceived... Adam was not. Now, Adam's sin was probably worse. It was disobedience. But Eve's sin was deception. And because she was deceived in a spiritual and in a doctrinal matter, God set forth a model. He ordained from that day forward for the man to lead and for the woman to follow, for the man to teach and to hold authority and responsibility in the home and in the church. And and when we abide by these biblical roles for husbands and wives today, understand, we're showing to the world half the gospel. We're preaching half the gospel. We're pointing people back to the origin of sin and their need for a Savior when we follow through with these biblical roles. Well, finally, Adam is sentenced. Verse 17. Then to Adam he said, 
Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. Up until now, Adam's work has been a breeze. I mean, when the guy gets hungry, he walks over and picks some fruit off a tree. But now, he's going to have to grow his own food out in the fields. You see, prior to the curse, here was the difference for Adam. His food had nothing to do with his work. I mean, his work was just a joy. He wasn't bringing home his daily bread. God was providing all of his needs. But now, God is saying, Adam, if you want to be independent of me, that's fine, but you can start by growing your own food, earning your own living. And while you're out there tilling the ground and working by the sweat of your brow, you're going to encounter some obstacles, some thorns, and some thistles. Suddenly, work has gone from being a breeze to being a burden. Verse 19. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Before man sinned, work was no sweat, but no more. Now because of his sin, the man will never again get out of his job a reward equal to what he puts into his job. Understand this. Wherever he went to work, he would always leave a little something of himself on the job. Until he had literally worked himself to death. And that is now the plight of every man since. That's why if you've been bouncing around from job to job. Looking for the perfect job. The perfect situation. You need to forget it. It doesn't exist. Every occupation. Every corporation has its thorns and thistles. Trust me. Even the ministry has its thorns and thistles. Every job has obstacles that irritate us and aggravate us. We need to accept the curse and allow God to use it to teach us to trust in Him. Verse 20. And God called his wife's name, and Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. He gives his wife another name. Eve means life giver. Adam took to heart all this talk about childbirth. And he believed that the wife would bear him children. And it's also possible that Adam, in giving her this name, was looking forward to the child spoken of in verse 15. The seed of the woman, the Savior, who would bruise the serpent's head. Verse 21, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. God didn't like Adam and Eve's fruit of the looms. And so he dressed them in leather. Animal skins necessitated the death of an animal, a sacrifice. And here from the very beginning, sin was atoned for by a sacrifice. You see, fig leaves were an attempt, a human attempt, to make up for sin with human effort. They were man-made. And people do this today. They sew together religious deeds and all sorts of good works in hopes of trying to cover up their sin. And yet God refuses that. He always insists on a sacrifice. 
God told Adam, you shall surely die. The wages of sin has always been death. And for sin to be forgiven, a sacrifice has to be offered. This is why you, are, you and I are said to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 ends on a sad, pathetic note. Truly, this is a paradise lost. Verse 22 declares, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here are the first cops on the beat. The angels who guard the way to the tree of life. Hey, that God drives Adam and Eve from the garden sounds like harsh treatment. But apparently God's actions here are laced with God's mercy. Because think about it. If Adam and Eve had eaten of the tree of life in their fallen sinful state, they would have stayed that way forever. They would have forever been destined to live apart from God. The fact that God barred them from eating the tree of life until sin could finally be atoned for, until Jesus could come and go to the cross and pay the penalty for our sin, only then does God now open the way to the tree of life. That was an act of God's mercy. And so there we have it. That's why we're in trouble today. You got Adam to blame for it. And yet, if it had been you in the Garden of Eden, do you really think it had been any different? No. Well, there we have Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Next week, we'll start in Genesis chapter 4. And I hope to get through, oh, chapter 7, I think. So read those chapters ahead this week. Father, thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for these wonderful chapters. Lord, we thank you for the truths that we learned tonight, the origin of so many things we find right here in, in Genesis. Lord, I pray that you'll help us as husbands to see our wife as our sidekick, our partner, our helper given to us by God. And, and help us, Lord, to, to pull her close to our side and love her from our heart. Help us, Lord. To, to be grateful to our wives for all they do for us. Lord, I pray for our wives, Lord, that they, would, uh, that they would be faithful to you, Lord, to walk in your ways, to be the helper to their husband that you've called them to be, to, to learn even to submit to his leadership, even though they know in advance that he'll make mistakes, that he'll blow it. Help them, though, Lord, to maintain the patterns that you set up. And Lord, we ask that you encourage us tonight to look to Jesus, our covering, our source, our satisfaction. He alone can save us, and we trust in him. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your goodness to us. We pray your blessing on the rest of the night. Give everyone a safe trip home and bless their week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.